0: Matthew chapter 5, beginning in verse 1. When Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and after he sat down, his disciples came to him. He opened his mouth and began to teach them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the gentle, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who have been persecuted for the sake of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward in heaven is great. For in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Well, last week um, I gave an overview of the Sermon on the Mount and brought out what I believe are some of the main themes. And the overarching theme that I highlighted was that the Sermon on the Mount is about life in the kingdom of heaven. You know, throughout the Old Testament, the prophets foretold about a coming king who would reign over Israel, and all Israel was eagerly awaiting this promised Messiah, And with the arrival of Jesus, there was undoubtedly excitement for some and wondering for others about whether or not this Jesus was the promised Messiah who would deliver Israel. But here on this mountain, Jesus began to teach his disciples and the crowd what citizenship in his kingdom would entail. And certainly it was not what they expected. And at the conclusion of the sermon, there at the end of chapter 7, it says, The crowds were amazed at his teaching, for he was teaching them as one having authority and not as their scribes. And they were right. He was teaching them with authority. In this sermon, uh, later on in chapter 5, he quotes the Mosaic Law several times and then says, but I say unto you. That right there is an authoritative statement when you think about it. Here, Jesus is quoting the law of Moses, which was given by who? It was given by God himself there on the mountain, given to Moses, who then writes it down and gives it to Israel. And Jesus is saying, you've heard this law of Moses, but I say to you. How can anyone but God make a statement like that? But I say unto you. So he was teaching them as one having authority. And here in this sermon, he begins to teach them what life in the kingdom of heaven would look like. And I highlighted last week two principles that we see. The first being that the Beatitudes are descriptions of the character of, of a citizen of the kingdom of heaven. The Beatitudes are not a list of rules we must keep or a checklist we must follow to become a Christian, but rather they are a list of characteristics of a true believer. Now one thing I do want to mention here, I'm using the term citizen of the kingdom of heaven, Christian, and believer interchangeably. So I don't want to mix anybody up. I'm not trying to differentiate those. I'm just using them interchangeably. Well, the second principle that I highlighted last week is that the life of a citizen of the kingdom of heaven must be a righteous life, not merely an external righteousness, but rather an internal righteousness, a righteousness of the heart. And we see that throughout the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus quotes the law of Moses that can be obeyed in an external physical sense, such as do not commit adultery. But then he points to the heart and says, but I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lust for her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. So again, he takes this external law and now he applies it to the heart. This high standard that Jesus sets surely amazed the people and probably caused them to wonder how anyone could live up to this standard of righteousness. And really, if we're honest ourselves, it causes us to feel the same way. How can anyone live up to this level of righteousness? And really, it is impossible. It's an impossible standard apart from God. But this is the wonder of the new birth. No longer are we attempting to fulfill these commands with a dead and stony heart, but God has given every Christian a new heart, a heart that is alive in the spiritual realm, a heart that is able to respond to his commands. And because of the new birth, we are able to go beyond just an outward external righteousness and begin to obey and honor God from the heart. But this is only possible because of the new birth and with the help of the Holy Spirit. So today, Lord willing, we will be considering this first beatitude in verse 3. But before... We do. I want to bring out some introductory thoughts about the Beatitudes in general, and then today we're just going to consider the one Beatitude. So the term Beatitude means essentially blessing or blessed. One definition that I found says complete happiness that comes from being blessed. So the Beatitudes are a pronouncement of blessing, both present and and future. And you see that in each of the Beatitudes. There is a present blessing. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Not you will be blessed someday, but rather blessed are the poor in spirit. Present tense. And that's the way it is for each one of the Beatitudes. But then there is also a future blessing with each of the Beatitudes. And if you notice, nearly all of them, except for this one we're going to consider today, um, but nearly all of them finish with, they shall. Verse 4, they shall be comforted. Verse 5, they shall inherit the earth. So there is a future tense there, a future blessing awaiting the believer. But I want to highlight one other thing regarding the current or the present blessing. Blessed are the poor in spirit. This word blessed in the Greek, makarios or makarios, can be translated as happy. And so this could be translated, happy are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven, or happy are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted, and so on for the rest of these beatitudes. But this sounds almost ridiculous when you use the word happy, especially with verse 4. Happy are those who mourn for they shall be comforted. Um, It's really, it's an oxymoron. It would be like saying full are those who are hungry, rested are those who are tired. You know, these are antonyms. You don't typically think of them in that way. So what is meant by this idea of blessing or happiness in particular here? And I want to explain it first from the standpoint of blessing, because I believe that this word blessing won't trip us up as much as the word happy. When Jesus says, blessed are the poor in spirit, and blessed are those who mourn, he is pronouncing an objective blessing upon them. He is saying, my blessing rests upon the one who is poor in spirit and who mourns. He is not speaking about a subjective uh, feeling Or about a physical manifestation of blessing, such as comfort and physical prosperity, when he says, blessed are the poor in spirit. Instead, he is saying, my favor, my smile rests upon this one. Well, what about the word happy, though? And I believe that this word happy should not be viewed in the subjective sense that we often typically think of it. You know, I feel happy today. That's often how we think of the word happy, is just in that subjective sense. But rather, I believe it is speaking of a happy condition. You are in a happy condition if you are poor in spirit. You are in a happy condition if you are one who mourns or if you hunger and thirst for righteousness, and so on. And I thought of an example of this. If you think about an infant, a baby, born into extreme poverty and suffering. But then if a loving and wealthy family adopts that baby out of that pitiful situation, that poverty and suffering situation, and brings it into a home full of love and giving it everything that it needs to survive and to grow and to prosper, you would say that is a happy condition for that baby. But what about What if the baby's crying, you know? it's hungry. Babies cry. So does that mean clearly that baby is not happy? Well, the baby may not be feeling happy, but they are in a blessed and happy place because of what this family has done for them. And so it is with us. We may not feel this sense of happiness, but we are in a place of great blessing. And you could even say we are in a happy condition because of what God has done for us. And that leads me then to this next point, which is if we truly understood and saw something of the objective reality of God's blessing upon us when we are walking in reality in this, and poor in spirit and those who mourn, um, we would have more of a happy countenance if we understood something of what God is saying here. So the subjective emotion happiness in that case would not be based upon an, um, a subjective uh, feeling, but rather upon an objective reality. And that is God's blessing and favor towards those who are poor in spirit, and towards those who mourn, and towards those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, and so on for the rest of the Beatitudes. But, that being said, I am not going to continue to use the word happy. I'm going to use it as it's here in, in my translation, the New American Standard, the word blessed. And I do believe that's probably an easier word for us to understand because we don't get tripped up with um, this association of the subjective sense in how we typically use the word happy. Well, let's get started here. Um, verse 3. Blessed are those, I'm sorry, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. So, what comes to your mind when you hear the word poor? You know, if you look up the word poor in the dictionary, probably one of the first definitions will be something along the lines of lacking material possessions or relating to or characterized by poverty. And so if you're like me, you probably immediately think when you hear the word poor, you think of a lack of money or a lack of possessions. But is that what Jesus is referring to here? Blessed are those who have little in this life. Is that what Jesus is saying? And I would say no, that is not what Jesus is speaking about here. Citizenship in the kingdom of heaven is not based upon how little we have in our checking account, or how few possessions we have, or how old and rusty our car is. Now, God may call some to great sacrifice, such as giving away houses and possessions and money, but to intentionally live at a poverty level for the sake of the kingdom of heaven is not what Jesus is commending here. That's not what he's exhorting here. He says, blessed are the poor in spirit. This poverty that Jesus is speaking about is not a physical poverty, but a poverty of the heart or a poverty of the spirit. Now, it may, this, those who are poor in spirit may also be poor in physical belongings, but it's not a direct correlation. This poverty of spirit begins on the inside and works itself out to the outside. In other words, it begins in the heart, and from there it begins to affect the externals as well. And how many people have gotten this completely backwards and thought by starting with the externals that they could affect the heart? And it doesn't work. Taking a vow of poverty without being poor in spirit just creates a proud, self-righteous, poor person. In other words, you're still poor on the outside, but you're not poor on the inside. But when this poverty of spirit or humility begins at the heart level, it eventually affects every area of that person. If there's a problem... With the fruit of the tree, you don't fix it by polishing up the rotten fruit out on the end of the branches. You fix it by dealing with the issues at the root of the tree. If the root is good, then the fruit will be good too. In uh, Philippians 2, uh, Paul exhorts us there to have humility of mind, which gets across the same idea. True humility must begin on the inside, in the mind, and in the heart. And the Pharisees were ones who outwardly appeared righteous. They had it all down on the external, but inside they were full of wickedness. And Jesus said this to them. Let me turn to Matthew 25, read a few verses here. Or rather, Matthew 23, verse 25. He says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you clean the outside of the cup and of the dish, but inside they are full of robbery and self indulgence. You blind Pharisee, first clean the inside of the cup and of the dish, so that the outside of it may become clean also. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you are like whitewashed tombs, which on the outside appear beautiful, but inside they are full of dead men's bones and all uncleanness. So you too outwardly appear righteous to men, but inwardly you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. So this gets across exactly what I'm talking about. Trying to affect the heart by dealing with the externals. It doesn't work. You must begin with the heart. And from there, it does begin to have a change in attitude and a change in behavior, a change in fruit. So, uh, being poor in spirit is not talking about externals. But then also, poverty of spirit is not referring to having a poor self-image. And there is a type of attitude that may appear to be poor in spirit, but in reality is just a preoccupation with self. This preoccupation with self may highlight the failings and shortcomings of self. So in that sense, it it seems like maybe it's being poor in spirit, but it never moves away from self. This type of person will often focus on their failings and conclude that God could never love a sinner such as myself, woe is me. And that's where they stay. They never go beyond that. And that is not poverty of spirit. It's actually uh, proud unbelief. If you're not willing to believe what God has done for you and saying God could never love a sinner like me, that's unbelief. A true poverty of spirit will see its failings and shortcomings, but will see it with a focus towards God and away from self. In other words, true poverty of spirit has a Godward focus, not an inward or self-focus. So, this is how I would describe poverty of spirit, and we'll, we'll look at some scriptural examples of this. Poverty of spirit is a complete emptying of self and a complete dependence upon God. A complete emptying of self and a complete dependence upon God. And that's what I mean by a Godward focus. The emptying of self may involve looking at self, but the dependence upon God means we're getting our eyes off of ourself and we're beginning to look to God. So how is this applied or manifested in conversion? Well, poverty of spirit in conversion means we realize that we have nothing to contribute to our salvation. No righteousness of our own, no good works, nothing to commend ourselves or recommend ourselves to God. We come empty and helpless before God, dependent entirely upon his mercy. That is what poverty of spirit looks like in conversion. You are emptied of everything in yourself, and you come in complete dependence to God. And I thought of this quote that has been um, credited to Jonathan Edwards, although in doing a little digging around, I I think there's some question as to whether or not he was... uh, originated this quote, but here it is nonetheless. It says this, you contribute nothing to your salvation except the sin that made it necessary. You contribute nothing to your salvation except the sin that made it necessary. That's getting across this idea of when you come to God, you are recognizing I have nothing to offer except my sin and now I'm dependent entirely upon his grace. That is what it means to be poor in spirit. Well, the prodigal son is a good example of poverty of spirit, and you don 't have to turn to it um, because i 'm sure you 're familiar with this story i 'm just going to uh, summarize and then read a couple verses. So you know the the prodigal son goes to his father and demands the inheritance before his father's passed away. He demands the inheritance. He takes this inheritance and runs off to a foreign land and squanders it in loose living, so basically living a party life. And then when that has all been lost, he is um, completely emptied, you might say, and he goes off and hi- or hires himself out as one who's working in the fields feeding the hogs, the swine. And as he's there, he begins to, in desperation, he's so hungry that he's looking at the food that the hogs are eating and thinks to himself, you know, I I would like to eat that. But then in verse 17, it says this, But when he came to his senses, he said, How many of my father's hired men have more than enough bread, but I am dying here with hunger? I will get up and go to my father and will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me as one of your hired men. So he left, the the prodigal son left um, proud, rich, and full. You know, his father had just given him this inheritance. So he was quite wealthy. And I'm sure there was cried there, look at all this that I have, arrogance, and he goes off and he squanders it. But he came home, uh, after he came to his senses rather, he, he returned to his father humbled, poor, and hungry. So what a contrast that is, leaving arrogant and proud and full, and then he returns emptied, poor, and hungry. He came home claiming nothing. Notice that in um, verse nineteen, I am no longer worthy to be called your son. He didn't claim what he could have said, you know, I've made a mistake, but I'm still your son, you know, make sure that I have that place of honor and respect as your son. He doesn't do that. He takes the low position and he asks for only for mercy to be allowed to be considered one of his father's hired servants. That is what poverty of spirit is. Not claiming anything, any right that you have, but recognizing I have nothing and I'm dependent entirely upon mercy, upon grace. There's a verse from a hymn that we sing sometimes that brings this thought out very well. Uh, This is from um, Top Lady, the song Rock of Ages. Nothing in my hand I bring... Simply to thy cross I cling. Naked, come to thee for dress. Helpless, look to thee for grace. Foul I to the fountain fly. Wash me, Savior, or I die. And that's, that is the confession of every true Christian. Nothing in my hand I bring. We cannot bring anything to God. We are dependent entirely upon his grace. Simply to thy cross I cling. Well, the word that obviously comes to mind when we're talking about poverty of spirit is the word humility. And how fitting it is that the first of the characteristics of a citizen of the kingdom of heaven is poverty of spirit or humility. There will be no proud person in heaven. No one in heaven will say, See what I did to gain access to this kingdom. Every citizen of the kingdom of heaven will be the same, emptied, helpless, humble, and completely dependent upon God. And there's a perfect illustration of this in one of Jesus' parables. So let's turn to this one in Luke 18. Luke 18, verses 9 and following. This is the account of the Pharisee and the publican, or the Pharisee and the tax collector. So Luke 18, verse 9. And he also told this parable to some people who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and viewed others with contempt. Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood and was praying this to himself, God, I thank you that I am not like other people, swindlers, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I pay tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing some distance away, was even unwilling to lift up his eyes to heaven, but was beating his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, the sinner. I tell you, this man went to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but he who humbles himself will be exalted. So this is really putting in parable form exactly what we're talking about here, about being poor in spirit. This ta- or rather this Pharisee is praying thanking God for, basically how good he is. Look at how good I am, God. I thank you that I'm not bad like that guy. That is not being poor in spirit. Instead, it's just the opposite. It's being rich in spirit. You know, a self-assessment is very high in that, that situation. But the contrast there with the tax collector or the publican. Standing some distance away, unwilling to even lift his eyes to heaven, he prays, God, be merciful to me, the sinner. What did this man have to offer? Nothing. He just says says it plainly, I am a sinner, and I need mercy. I need grace. And that's what it means to be poor in spirit. You recognize I can offer nothing to God. I am dependent entirely upon his grace. And that's exactly what this tax collector prays. And Jesus says, This man went to his house justified. In other words, that's who Jesus came to save. Those people right there who recognize that they have nothing and are dependent entirely upon his grace. Well, there are many other passages of scripture that highlight God's attitude towards the humble. And for the sake of time, I've narrowed it down to just three passages. And I'm really just going to read these without much commentary. So this first one, James chapter 4, verse 6. But he gives a greater grace, therefore it says, God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. And then a few verses later, verse 10, it says, humble yourselves in the presence of the Lord, and he will exalt you. Which is exactly what Jesus said here in, in this parable, he who humbles himself will be exalted. And then another passage, Psalm 138, verse 6. For though the Lord is exalted, yet he regards the lowly, but the haughty he knows from afar. And in case you're not catching the connection there, the humble and the lowly are the same. So this psalm is saying he regards the lowly, he regards the humble. And then Isaiah 66, verses 1 and 2. Thus says the Lord. Heaven is my throne, and the earth is my footstool. Where then is a house you could build for me? And where is a place that I may rest? For my hand made all these things. Thus all these things came into being, declares the Lord. But to this one I will look. If we didn't know anything about the Bible, and we read up to that point, we would think this exalted God, Who's he going to look to? He surely is going to look to the one who has a lot to offer, but it's exactly the opposite. To this one I will look, to him who is humble and contrite of spirit and who trembles at my word. You see that there, humility. God takes notice of humility. So do we really comprehend the incredible blessing that God bestows upon the humble? In James, it says he gives grace to the humble. And in Psalms, it says he regards the lowly or the humble. And in Isaiah, it says he looks to the humble. And at a surface level, this may not seem that impressive. God regards the humble or looks to the humble. But really, this is unbelievably wonderful. God, who cannot tolerate wickedness who cannot be in the presence of sin, says that he takes special notice of the humble. He says that he is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble, special favor towards the humble. And this idea of being opposed to the proud made me think about magnets. And for you kids, if you've ever played with magnets before, you know that some of them... When you turn them just right, they are actually opposed to one another. I know these are very small, but I have them turned in such a way that as I get close together, they're opposed. Their forces are actually pushing against each other, and with enough strength, I can get them to touch. But you can feel the opposition there as I'm pushing in. It won't come together very easily anyway. These are really small magnets. I can't imagine how much force it would take if you had a really big magnet. But if I take one of these and turn it around, it comes together with nearly an inseparable bond. So you see that. Opposition, when it's turned in the wrong way, completely opposed. But then when you turn it around, it's bound together. It sticks together like that. That is the way God is towards the proud, He's opposed. You can't bring a proud person into the presence of God without his wrath being upon that person. He's opposed to the proud. But to the humble? What is he towards the humble? Just like this magnet. Turn it around. He's drawn. He shows special favor and grace towards the humble. He invites the humble to come in so that he can lavish his grace upon them. So you see then how fitting this first beatitude or blessing is. You are in a state of great blessing when you are poor in spirit. Why? Because God shows grace to the humble. Let me get back here to Matthew 5. Blessed are the poor in spirit. So you see that? Remember, this this beginning word, blessed, You are in a state of blessing. God is showing favor to this one, to the one who's poor in spirit. And again, when we connect that with the rest of these verses that we've looked at, we see the special favor that God has towards the humble or towards the poor in spirit. Well, what then about the blessing, the future blessing? For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Jesus is telling us that the kingdom of heaven is reserved for the poor in spirit. The kingdom of heaven belongs to the poor in spirit. It's theirs. Theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Grace is given now to the humble. That's true. To everyone who's walking in humility, grace is given to you now, and heaven awaits the humble. God's presence now, his favor now, and eternity in the kingdom of heaven with him is the promised blessing. So in other words, this one here, we have we have a present tense blessing and a future tense blessing, but even the future tense, we're beginning to experience it right now. And that is God's favor being shown to us. We won't realize it in its fullness until heaven, but God's favor, God's grace is already upon you if you are the poor in spirit. But it's much more than just his grace and his favor now. It's eternity in heaven. Theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Well, in conclusion... I have spent this time examining a characteristic of a citizen of the kingdom of heaven, and that is poverty of spirit, being poor in spirit. But what if you are not a citizen of this kingdom? What if this beatitude, this poverty of spirit, is not characteristic of your life? What exhortation is there for you? Well, like the prodigal son that we looked at earlier, you need to, as it said of him, come to your senses. You know, he was sitting there for who knows how long in that pig pen thinking that this was what his life was going to be like. And then he came to his senses. It's like reality dawned on him at that point. And that's what you need. You need reality to dawn on you. You need to come to your senses. You need your spiritual eyes opened to see God for who he is and to see yourself for who you truly are. And my dad didn't know he was going to share that, but that was very fitting what he shared about there this morning about the one who is dead or the one who is blind um, or even the one who's lame and what these pictures, what Jesus is showing us. By physically doing the miracle, he's showing us a spiritual reality. Well, how does one go about having their spiritual eyes opened? In other words, if you're blind, how do you get your spiritual sight given to you? Well, do you remember the story of Bartimaeus there? Here he's blind, blind Bartimaeus, and Jesus comes walking by. What does he do? He cries out, Jesus, Son of David, have mercy on me. He cries out to him. And did God show mercy? Yes, God came and answered his prayer and opened his eyes. Bartimaeus cried out, and God heard him. And so it is for you, too. If you're spiritually blind, cry out to God that he might give you sight, that he might give you spiritual sight. Ask God to open your blind eyes, but then secondly, look to Jesus. Read the scriptures and look at Jesus. And as you read about Jesus in the scriptures, ask God to open your eyes to see something of his majesty and his glory. It's as you look to the light that you will begin to see everything else clearly. And that is so important in the spiritual realm. You're not going to see spiritual realities clearly if your eyes are not towards Christ. Because he is light. And if we're just looking at our pitiful situation and that's as far as we're going, it's darkness all around. We're not going to see anything clearly. But it's as we get our eyes upon Christ that we begin to see things clearly. Well, amen. That's all for today. Why don't we close in prayer here? Father, we thank you for this wonderful promise that we see over and over in Scripture, that you show grace, that you show favor towards the humble, and Lord, we pray that we would humble ourselves before you. Lord, we don't want to be like the Pharisee uh, who was claiming all his good deeds, all his self-righteousness before you and left empty-handed. Lord, we want to be like uh, like the tax collector there, just confessing our sin and leaning completely upon your mercy and your grace And, Lord, we thank you that you do show favor, that you do show grace towards the humble. Lord, help us to walk in this reality. I pray for anyone here today who doesn't know anything of this reality. Lord, that you would open their blind eyes. Lord, that they would be able to humble themselves before you. Lord, thank you for your great mercy for us. In Jesus' name, amen.